You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 21. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we interview Andrew Reinhardt. He's an Archeo gamer, and we're going to ask him what the heck Archeo gaming is. If he sounds familiar, Andrew was on the team that discovered the cache of Atari games that were buried several decades ago. Stay until the end for our App of the Day segment. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me as always is my co-host, Chris Sims. Hi. Let's get right to the show and talk about Archeo gaming with Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome, Andrew. Well, thanks for having me, Chris and Chris. No problem, no problem. So, Andrew, <laughs> you've got a you've got yeah. a BA in archaeology and one in writing as well from the University of Evansville, and an MA in archaeology from the University of Missouri Columbia. That's uh, yeah. straight off your LinkedIn page. But some of your other stuff on there doesn't really look like it leads to archaeo gaming. So, why don't you give us a little bit more about your your background, and then we'll get into archaeo gaming. Sure. Um... Yeah, I got uh, yeah the, the bachelor's and the MA in classical archaeology, um, and during the course of getting those degrees, I've dug at uh, Poggio Civitate, which is an Etruscan site in Italy. Um, I've dug at the site of Ismia, which is in Greece, and I've also helped fellow graduate students um, work on their PhDs by excavating um, in Illinois and in Kansas. And uh, most recently, I was uh, the lead archaeologist at the Atari burial ground in Alamogordo, New Mexico, yeah. uh, where we excavated those uh, copies of E.T. and about 40 other titles, too. Um, so I, I guess you could say I'm classically trained in archaeology. And, you know, when I started playing MMOs like World of Warcraft, um, the archaeologist in me was just going bananas. It's like, wow, look at all this stuff. Look at all this history. Look at all this lore. You know, look at the architecture. Look at look at everything. And uh, something clicked. And this was back in like 2007, 2008, that, that archaeology and video games could kind of coexist. Um, and uh, we didn't really formalize things until I put together archaeogaming.com back in uh, 2013. Okay. Well, let's get – you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but let's get right into this because I've got some – uh, some things. I'm on archaeogaming.com, and you've got a nice little uh, paragraph here to start the thing out for your about paragraph. Now, I understand, you know, you talk about especially things like World of Warcraft, where it's an open world where people can leave things lying around. You know, people can can make an, a, an effect and an impact on the world, um, and that's something that can be studied. Um, but you also mentioned stuff like, and I want to talk about that in a little in a minute, but I want to get this out of the way first. You also mentioned stuff like. Um, design and function of pottery and textiles and architecture um, varying between iterations uh, in a game. That sounds more like, uh, and stuff like that sounds more like just a design thing and not really something you can study archaeology, archaeologically within the game because, I mean, that kind of stuff you could just theoretically talk to the developer who's probably some, you know, some young adult in their 20s right now. <laughs> it's not like yeah. they're dead and they don't exist, <laughs> but you could go talk to them about that and then you've got the history of that and you've got that. Is it really something that needs to be, I don't know, studied? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, you know, when I wrote that about paragraph, that was back in 2013 when I started thinking seriously about archaeology and video games. Um, I, I've, I've actually written to a couple of houses. I've written to Blizzard. I've written to Bethesda um, to try to get in touch with the designer so we can talk. Um, you know, as an archaeologist, especially as an archaeologist who is specializing in the Greek world, um, you know, I would have loved, you know, to have gone back in time and talked to people who are designing pottery, for example. It's like, why that shape? Or why are you painting like that? And, you know, that's not going to happen. And so we're really at a great point in time where, where if we're studying something that's been, that's been actually designed, we can reach out to the developer. We can, we can ask these kinds of questions. Uh, but, you know, in a way, it's kind of yelling into a black hole. Um, right. These guys are super busy. Um, you know, I'd say most of the designers are still active, you know, doing their own thing. And it's it's really going to take a lot of luck um, in order to, to get in touch with these guys. But um, then again, if you think of it, you know, like, uh, you know, from an art, art historical angle, um, you know, there are a lot of living artists, you know, who are, who are doing, you know, art, you know, contemporary art. And, you know, you can talk to them about stuff and that's fine, but you're only going to get part of the equation. You're going to get their interpretation and you're not necessarily going to get all of the answers, um, you know, to the questions that you're asking here. So, you know, as an archaeologist or as an art historian, you know, there are plenty of other things that you can do and that you can study that don't involve actually, you know, talking to the, to the artist or in this case, talking to the developer. 
Uh, I'd love to do it. Um, I am still waiting for replies. Um, and uh, I, I've gotten some response um, on the blog, and basically it's kind of a, a quid pro quo type of arrangement. What can I lend to a developer as an archaeologist and trade that for information that they can give me about what it is that they're developing? Um, but that's only part of what archaeogaming actually is, is uh, you know the kind of design choices that are happening within a game. You know, there's There's a lot more to it. You kind of allude to this, Andrew, and I've I've got some questions for you. What are some of the uh, the questions, like research questions, for example, that you're approaching from an archaeological standpoint that kind of bring it more into the realm of uh, the skill set that an archaeologist could bring, rather than strictly an art historian or strictly a designer or strictly an like cultural anthropologist. Um, so, what are some of the skill sets like looking forward to the potentials? and the research questions that you see archaeology having a stronger foot? Yeah, no, this is a, this is a terrific question. This is one that I've been kind of struggling with over the past couple of years because, you know, we're, we're talking about archaeology and games. Um, we can treat uh, video games as archaeological artifacts, you know, in a very literal sense. Like with the Atari stuff, it was pretty obvious to say, okay, these things were buried here. We can physically dig them up and we can see what's going on. Um, and... You know, that's that's part of the equation. But what about uh, treating games themselves um, as discrete archaeological sites, um, which is what I think some folks are really doing now. I'm, I'm not the only one doing this. There are others. Uh, Tara Copplestone, for example, uh, Megan Dennis, uh, Katie Myers, Sean Graham. You know, all of you know, all of these folks um, are involved in, in asking archaeological questions about about video games. For for me, the uh, the main research question is. What do we do in games that are procedurally generated? That is to say, games that are created by algorithms written by somebody. Um, and how are those algorithms interpreted uh, by the software to create culture, to create material culture? What is that like? And what can we learn from it? Um, you know, because we're finally being able to go into these worlds and see cultures that haven't existed before. And these are basically, you know, machine created. So, so, you know, what does that mean? What are we looking at? We haven't really experienced that before, you know, as the human race. Um, and, and that is a super important, uh, you know, question that's, that's been weighing on my mind. Um, other researchers like Megan Dennis, for example, um, over at York, she is taking a look at reception. So, so how are archaeologists represented in games? How is archaeology represented in games? And, and, you know, is that having an effect on the real world? Um, you know, and that's those. Those are valid questions to be asking as well. Um, for uh, you know, for for me though, treating the games as actual artifacts and then going in um, to or as archaeological sites and going in to you know kind of observe artifacts within the game, uh, things that I'm tentatively calling game effects. I can't think of a better word, and it's really bothering <laughs> me because you know you call them game effects, you're like, oh, that's really cute, you know, but but that's kind of what they are. Um, so things like uh, glitches um, and bugs that exist in a space and point in time within a game that are then fixed and disappear from the record. Um, you know, why are they there? How are they created? Um, how do they impact gameplay? Uh, how do they impact the gaming community um, and the economics of the game? You know, those are, those are important questions. And, you know, I, I think these are, you know, questions that are scalable to the real world, um, you know, to, to uh, real world archeology span as well. I mean, you know, we're, we seem to be asking the same questions, but just in two different environments. Yeah, definitely. And I can also see some potentials. Uh, at, we're talking about the real world. It's almost like a, a meta behavior going on where yeah. you have in the real world a consumption of either a material item, which is a disc, or you know, now we're downloading straight from websites and, and you know, gaming consoles and all that. But you know, you've got like a consumption pattern, and then you've got a whole economic structure behind it that creates this thing, and very specialized tasks to create this thing, and then you have people behaving within the virtual realm, and that's just really interesting to see like all of this interacting in the real and the meta and the virtual. It's kind of neat. Yeah, the uh, the crossover between the real and virtual has been something that's been on my mind as well. Um, specifically, you know, I, I publish for the American Numismatic Society, and so we're always talking about coins and currency and economics, and and seeing that behavior cross over from the virtual to the real, to see how the, how real world markets affect virtual world markets, and actually vice versa. Uh, and then you've got things like cosplay, and you've got Etsy, where people are making 
reproductions of recipes or reproductions of coins or of armor, weapons that they can sell in the real world that are based in, in the original game. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, it kind of blows my mind as far as, you know, what's going on there. Um, let me, uh, let me see if there's anything else, but, but uh, yeah, that, that intersection uh, between the real and the virtual, that kind of middle space or that meta space um, is super intriguing to me. I mean, on the one hand, when you're talking about machine-created culture, it's, it's kind of independent of, of human input, you know, what's going on there and how's the computer kind of thinking about these things. Um, but uh, when you have the culture, you know, for example, if you're in World of Warcraft or Elder Scrolls Online or something like this, you're making things, you're interacting with people, you're trading, you're selling, and you can kind of trace these artifacts that you've crafted, you know, um, you know throughout the world to see what's going on. Um, yeah, that's, that's super interesting to me. So let, let me ask an obvious question that I know, I know some people out there are thinking, have you and others that are in this RQ gaming field created this field so you can play video games for a living? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's be honest here. <laughs> cause, oh, man. cause we're, we're cultural, we're cultural, archae- <laughs> or, uh, cultural resource management archaeologists and we kind of got yeah. into it just to hike and get paid for it. So, I mean, let's just get down to it. <laughs> Man, I, I, I wish, um, you know, I, I've, I, I've got a day job. Um, all of the stuff that I do, you know, for Archeo Gaming is done on my own time. Um, uh, maybe mm-hmm. one of these days that'll change. But but with, uh, you know, I've been gaming since, I don't know, like 1978, 79. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back with the original, you know, with the Atari 2600 and then with the Intellivision and then later. Um, and it's always been that's been my go-to it's either reading or playing games has been my go-to activity you know when i'm winding down from school or from work or whatever and so if i'm able to to mash that up um with my other love which is archaeology you know so much the better right um so uh if other people are doing this full-time then you know super (laughs) you know i i I would love to be there too but but uh no i just Go ahead. I, def- I definitely understand that. I, I mean, I'm kind of doing the same thing by starting my own company and and bringing technology into archaeology. It's my sort of passion is high tech stuff and trying to see how that works with archaeology. So I kind of created that, you know, for myself, and and I I totally understand it. Um, you know, from just a pure semantics point of view too, is this really kind of anthropology, not archaeology? I mean, you're kind of studying. Uh, it's not like there's soil des- deposition within within video games and you're out there excavating unless there is you know it's funny there there isn't there isn't <laughs> but uh, you know when you're when you're dealing with archaeology you're looking at stuff you know yeah. what have people made or what have people playing as other people what have they made or what has been designed that is kind of sh- you know showing up and waiting for you in these games or what is there available to craft um, and so yeah I mean anthropology is certainly a, a, a big part of it but the archaeology is basically looking at the remains um, what has been built what is there what's the story behind that uh, and you're kind of learning about the human history or the history of some other race um, you know in the games that you're playing um, you know archaeo gaming is not really dirt archaeology you know we're not we're not so it is and it isn't. I mean, you know, we can't physically dig through, you know, whatever is going on unless it's part of the game mechanic. Like in a World of Warcraft, you've got an archaeology skill and you can kind of dig down and find stuff, but you're not getting any kind of context. You're not getting any levels. You're not you're not seeing how the soil is changing. You're not seeing intrusions or any any of that stuff. So so in that way, it's it's not real archaeology as as people are kind of expecting it to be. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you're when you're playing these games. Uh, there are things that are showing up that are just strange that are happening in world that you won't see anywhere else. And so you kind of have to think of a new tool set or a new way of thinking about the environment that you're in because it's, it's not behaving under real physics. It's not in the real world. And so it's, it's operationally different uh, for whatever it is that you're, that you're up to. So mm-hmm. there, there's a, a story that came out, I don't know, like two or three weeks ago and, and uh, um, some some guy was playing Fallout Four, which just came out, and and he fell in the ocean, and his his suit allowed him to breathe underwater. So he's like, you know what? I didn't die when I fell in the ocean, so I'm gonna go walk around. So he went walking around, and he found like part of part of the structure sticking out from like this coral reef. Um, and there's no reason for it to be in the game. There, there's no way to get into it. Um, and it just seemed to be tucked away or hidden. So, you know, is, does this have a function? Is this something that the developers were working on and then left behind? Um, you know, what's going on? And so he, he like 
posted the GPS coordinates so people could go in and take a look and go and study. And, and as, as soon as I'm done with Alien Isolation, I thought <laughs> I'm going to play Fallout 4, you know, having just finished Rise of the Tomb Raider, and, and uh, you know, I'm going to go have a look. Um, so, you know, you've got that stuff going on where, you know, it's, it's, it's weirdness, um, and it, it's part of the game world, but, but, but uh, you know, kind of peripheral to it. And so, you know, it's, it's a bit strange. And, you know, when you're dealing with these kinds of things, I think, you know, version numbers, build numbers, um, time, and, and those kinds of things help define what it is that you're describing archaeologically, as opposed to, you know, dealing down, you know, d- digging down to a, you know, particular deposits and making recordings in that way. It, it works a little bit differently. So I guess the I guess the issue I have, uh, especially with your example with Fallout Four, um, and, and I haven't played that, and I don't I actually don't play any games really. I I, I got out of it a while back, and I just haven't gotten back into it. Oh, um, he's still owning. <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, it all it all really intrigues me, and it's just uh, in the current phase of business ownership, there's little time for that right now. But I'm not I'm not opposed to it. Um, but I just showing you my knowledge on this stuff. I don't I don't really have any. And when you're talking about something like this structure that's underwater and, and those questions you asked are valid, you know, did developers leave that there? Did they, is that going to be a, you know, maybe a future game element or something like that? I don't know. And it's fun to go there and check it out. But you're literally dealing with a world that has a creator and, and a god for all intents and purposes. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, I'm not a religious person. Um, so I know that in my worldview, everything that we find archaeologically in the real world was put there by a person whose intentions we can't really know and we may never know but if you're in now i can understand calling it archaeology and archaeo gaming if you're in a world where people are modifying the environment not the developers but people are modifying it you know after the development it's been just let to you know they basically gave it its initial state and then it's been left to to be altered by the users yes um so in that sense, I understand it. But in the sense of, say, Fallout 4 with that structure, I have a hard time buying that because that's really just kind of a cool, fun game thing to find. You know what I mean? It's like the, it's like finding a, a hidden coin in a brick in Mario Brothers. I wouldn't call that archaeology. I'd call it part of the game. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that, um, you, know, you raise a great point. Um, you know, with, with the Fallout 4 example, you know, the, the question there was, you know, did the developers do this? you know, deliberately and, and, and why is it there? Or was it just a screw up, you know, where they develop it, where they building out the world and they decide, you know what, we're going to go in a different direction, but we already did this work. So we're just going to leave it because it's going to take us more effort than anything to, to remove it and mm-hmm. do something else. And, and so in that fact, you know, it is kind of an artifact in that, in that respect, because we just, right. you know, we, we don't know, you know, we, we could write the guys, but we'll never hear from them. It's like praying, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <Good>. I've always, <laughs> I, I've always considered um, these kind of video games to be deist constructions. If you think about, you know, Thomas Jefferson and deism, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you've got this prime mover who makes stuff and then walks away. You know, it's like, okay, here's the world. You know, have fun with it. I'm done. You know, I made it. I, I did my best, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you guys take over. And so, you know, you're looking at things like Second Life, for example. You look at things like Minecraft, um, and. Destiny. Uh, yeah, so so uh, you know you've got you've got these these environments that are built, and then you know they're just left to spin, and it's up to the community to do with them what they will. Um, and so what you're seeing after the fact is you, you kind of have two levels. You have the level of initial genesis, and then you've got the the secondary level of what the population does to the space. After the fact, um, you know, I, th- I think both of those are, are are valid for for archaeological exploration. You know, these are both made by people, um, and the stuff that we're looking at in archaeology is made by people. You know, it's made by design. They're mistakes. Uh, they're intentional design choices. It just so happens that uh, you know, for for looking at things that were built in antiquity, um, the people aren't around anymore. Um, you know, but if you're if you're doing archaeology of the recent past, whether it's in the virtual or the real world. Um, you know, we, we have the opportunity to talk to folks, but at the same time, you know, we can, you know, we can take some time to, to take a look at what's going on um, and, and ask questions of what's happening. All right, cool. Well, let's take a short break and come back and talk some more about Archeo Gaming. Gaming. <laughs> 
Still recording on paper in the field? Hate having to process hundreds of site records when you get back to the office and would rather go straight to report writing and research? DigTech has the answer. Hi, I'm Chris Webster, founder of DigTech LLC, a disabled veteran-owned CRM firm and archaeological technology research and development firm. At DigTech, we're creating applications for smartphones and tablets that will increase efficiency in the field and will keep archaeologists doing what they love, archaeology, and will reduce the amount of busy work in the office. Some of what we do involves enhancing existing third-party applications that are already on the app stores. Use our consultation form on the website at www.digtech-llc.com forward slash tablet, and we'll help you figure out what digital solution is best for you. The cost of going digital is a lot less than you think, and once you do it, you'll wonder why you ever recorded on paper to begin with. Contact Chris over at DigTech, the parent company of the Archaeology Podcast Network, today, and let DigTech help you save paper, save time, save resources, and go digital. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back. And so I'm wondering, you mentioned a few times sort of the, the value this has, um, RQ Gaming in general uh, has, but I, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. What what would, if you were applying for, say, grant funding, which I can't imagine uh, RQ Gaming, if it does, or if people are doing this, quote unquote, for a living, they're probably in an academic setting would be my guess. Um and if you're applying for a grant and you're trying to, to get a, a funding body to fund you to do this research, how can you tell them what value this has to the greater good? You know what I mean? Um, what what information does it give us to know that, you know, some, I don't know, teenagers left some trash around in World of Warcraft or, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, what are we learning from this really? You know, what is, what is this getting us? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think folks ask the same questions of, of real-world archaeology, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, there, <laughs> there's always the so what question, you know? It's like, yeah. hey, you're doing this stuff, so what? Um, yeah. And so, you know, we uh, I think that archaeogaming and, and real-world archaeology are in the same boat, although it's 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 arguable, you know, that, that real-world archaeology is is certainly at the at the level right now where, where you know, these are real people doing real things with real artifacts that impact real lives. Um, my, and, my, my 50-year-old yeah. beer cans are important, damn it. <laughs> Don't, I'm not going to let any rancher tell me otherwise. <laughs> hey, this can have peaches in it. <laughs> nice. You know, uh, but it's, it's all important to, to understanding, you know, how the world works. And what's really interesting about games and, and you know, right now, I mean, archaeo gaming is still pretty it, it's super young. It's super, super young. I mean, we're still figuring it out. You know, part of what the reason I do my blog um, is just to think out loud um, and and try to figure out where where we want to take this. Um, and, uh, you know, the other folks who are doing archaeo gaming in an academic context, as you say, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, they're they're kind of up against the same thing. You know, we're we're kind of pioneers right now with with this kind of archaeological science but at the same time you know we're dealing with real people uh we're dealing with built environments and we're asking similar questions about why things were created um you know how people interact with the world and how they interact with each other you know whether it's real world or virtual space it's it's still you know the same kinds of behavior that are happening um you know for, for me the interesting question as i said earlier is is what happens when machines get involved and they start interpreting the rules and start creating stuff. What does that mean? Because we haven't seen that before. Um, and so I'm really curious to see, you know, how machine created environments and human interaction, human interaction with those um, compares with, with just human, human built things and, and how we interact with, uh, with, with those kinds of elements too. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be able to get a grant right now. <laughs> you know, if I, if I wrote and said, you know, I, I'm studying video games and archaeology, and they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, Google but, might give you a grant, but yeah, they, they might. But <laughs> it, it, you know, it's a start. Um, and you know, somebody asked me the other day, it was like, what's your goal for archaeogaming? And I said, well, you know, I, I've I've been published in a couple of peer rev peer reviewed journals already. I, I've talked in a couple of of professional conferences about this, you know, and the reception's been pretty good. But what I'd really like to do is do some kind of archaeological field report in a virtual space and get that published in just a regular archaeological journal, you know, like the American Journal of Archaeology or or you know one of SAA's publications or something like that, just to be treated on its own as an archaeological report, irrespective of real versus virtual, mm -hmm. you know, being published in something, you know, that deals with artificial intelligence or, or, you know, um, MMOs or, or game studies or something, you know, that's, that's fine. But, but being published in a, in a traditional archaeological journal for some kind of non-traditional 
site, um, I think is, is really the goal that'll show that we've turned the corner. That's quite a challenge. So what are the challenges for gaining legitimacy? Like what are the steps that need to be taken to make that next jump into, you know, the quote unquote respected publications to be taken as an authentic and legitimate field of study? Um, I think, I think it's time and patience, you know, for one, I mean, you know, for the people who are doing this right now, it's being done, you know, very seriously, very earnestly, um, and with an eye to, to detail. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to approach this with some kind of academic rigor, um, you know, and treating these things. And, you know, with, with video games, it's, it's no different than like studying novels and doing literary criticism. You know, it's, it's just a different medium. Um, but with these, you know, these are like self-contained universes or self-contained worlds that, you know, deserve, in my opinion, you know, their own particular study. I have a feeling that, that, uh, as, as the subdiscipline matures and as we kind of figure out what we can do, what we can't do, what are the good questions to ask? What are the stupid questions? Um, that, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, we'll get to a point where we'll be, we'll be able to articulate, you know, something that a real world archaeologist can, can take a look at, um, you know, and, and thinking about this just now, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to think about, you know, why is, why it's necessary to justify, you know, the uh, archaeology of, of a virtual space to archaeologists, uh, you know, in the real world. I mean, I, I think, for the for the most for the most part, I mean, most of us who are doing archaeo gaming started, you know, doing archaeology in meat space. You know, um, I call it meat space, and this is coming from Neuromancer uh, by William Gibson, um, where uh, you know you're dealing with with the flesh world. Um, you, know, you know, we've all done archaeology there, and so we, we're kind of gravitating towards these new spaces. Um, you know, dealing with with artifacts that are. I call it uh, material culture of the immaterial, you know, because we can't hold them, but we can, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm kind of rambling here, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, right. but, but yeah, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I think it's up to, to us, you know, who are kind of pushing the field forward to demonstrate that what we're doing and what we're asking is really no different than what we're doing and what we're asking for archaeology of the real world um, and of, of archaeological sites there. I think we're we're going at it in the same way. We just happen to be looking at spaces, you know, and some of these spaces are occupied by tens of thousands, if not millions of people, you know, every day. So, you know, that's certainly worthy of of uh, of analysis in some way. You know, I was I was really um we actually talked about this a little bit, which in the field with me, Chris, and, and a couple other people, um, when we were on a project out in California, you know, you're, you're walking around in the desert and you start thinking about stuff, but, um, <laughs> you know, we were, we, we were talking about this and I was, I'm, I was pretty skeptical about archaeo gaming, but I hadn't really looked at it enough. Um, but I, I kind of now see it, especially with worlds that have been given an initial set of conditions and kind of just left to the users, um, you know, with maybe a little bit of input from the developers to to add new features and things like that. But um, I'm interested in those because it almost seems like it almost seems like if you were to do archaeology in that universe with its different rules, because I mean they do have different rules. Because often there's magic and things like that, so they have different physical rules. Um, but it almost seems like a little version of almost a xeno archaeology. You know, like an alien archaeology. Like if we were to go do archaeology on another planet, you know, with a with a different sort of being that you know intelligent being that was there at some point we would have to look at things a little differently this the techniques are the same but our interpretation is going to be very different yeah or even processualism or other theoretical frame points where there's no such thing as agency or chaos right yeah. <laughs> i mean you got to look at stuff like that are, are there any game worlds that were um you know building on that are there any games out there that were built like almost just built by algorithm they were given a set of conditions and then developed in a certain way and then given to the users basically and said here have at it is there anything like that um that you know yeah, of? They're, they're, they're gonna they're gonna be people out there who have a better answer to this question than i do mm -hmm. um you know as much as i enjoy gaming and 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 you know doing the archaeology of games um my gameplay has been limited. You know, you compare my hours against Tara Copplestones, for example, and I might have, <laughs> I might have a couple hours in Skyrim, and she might have four thousand. You know, it's right. just, you know, so uh, or or you know, the suite of games that I'm working with is like twenty, and 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 uh, you know, she's got like four hundred. So mm -hmm. it depends on it depends on who you ask. But 
but you know there there are going to be games out there, especially the ones that are procedurally generated. That is to say that you know that uh, you know the programmers have created a set of rules, they've created an environment, and then they kind of let it go and it does its own thing. Um, you uh, you know you'll you'll have games like that. I mean, Minecraft is procedurally generated. The the one that's coming up in in June now on PlayStation Four and on PC is uh, No Man's Sky, which is the one I've been waiting for for years now, and a, and a lot of people other a lot of other people have been thinking about this in the same way because we want to see billions of worlds created by math basically um and what does that mean and you know what do we what do we do with those what kind of questions do we ask how do we explore them how do we document it um so uh you know the the exoarchaeology the xenoarchaeology is 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 certainly part of this and and you know we're kind of playing right now because because most of the games that we have are fixed spaces you know they're finite they might be open worlds, but they're really boundaries. Um, and so we're kind of playing in a sandbox at this point. But when those when those games come, when No Man's Sky comes, and when when the games after that, you know, start showing up that are really infinite, um, and uh, you know, create things, you know, by code, you know, how do we? You know, what do we do as, as archaeologists? You know, it's like we, we haven't experienced this before. We don't know. Um, and you know, what is it from from these kind of explorations? You know, that can help us when it comes time to you know exploring or documenting archaeology on you know another planet somewhere. Yeah, you know, we we don't know. We're, we're we're figuring it out, but it's 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 going to take some time. Do you know if uh, Second Life is the only online world that doesn't have like a a goal or a quest structure because I know you can get into Second Life and just exist. There's no real, yeah. There's no real goal. Is there anything else like that, or do they all have sort of an underlying, you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you play The Sims, for example. Oh, that um, too. Yeah, yeah. Apologies to Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I pl- I played The Every Sims time. for three months. <laughs> you know, so you've got you've got stuff like that where you know I'm. My kid does this. You know, she comes down in the morning and she turns on The Sims and she like makes things and 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 interacts. And she doesn't really like play the game. She just plays with stuff. You know, yeah. she makes stuff. She gets downloadable content and she kind of exists in the world. You know, just just as a as a, a place where she can showcase fashion and things like that. You know, that, that's fine. Um, you know, with with Second Life, it's not really a game. Um, you know, there's always that classic debate: is it a game? Is it not a game? Well, who cares? Right. It's a virtual space where you can go and do it in whatever you want. Um, and I had, I had a great experience actually. Um, and, and there are other folks out there, Sean Graham, for example, Colleen Morgan, um, recently went back to second life to, to do some exploration there in an archeological way. Um, yeah. uh, I created a, when I worked for Polchese Carducci publishers, you know, back from 2007 to 2010, um, I created a, a Latin speaking villa in a place called Roma SPQR. And I went and I built the villa. <laughs> I hung it with posters with like Latin phrases and questions, you know, so that people could come in and have, like have discussions in Latin and stuff. And, and then I quit that job to go to the American school of classical studies at Athens and was there for four years. And then, and then, you know, um, at the conclusion of that, I'm like, you know what? I haven't been in second life in like four or five years. I wonder what's going on. So I went back to my SIM. Uh, my villa was gone but the people were there. The same people who I'd met five years ago mm-hmm. uh, were still there, and they were still building. They remembered who I was and where my plot was, um, and they showed me around and said, "Look at what we built here, and look what we built there." And, and you know, it's vibrant. And then you've got folks like Colleen Morgan and Sean Graham who go back into to Second Life, and you know, their their place is a wasteland. There's nobody around. Um, things were either exactly how they left it or had been wiped off the map. Um, and so, you know, it really depends on where you're going in these worlds as, as far as what you'll see. So, you know, in my case, I got really lucky, you know, that, that it was still a vibrant community and others, you know, it's, it's a ghost town. Do you think these really, um, thinking a little bigger here, do you think these really involved, detailed, multi, you know, thousands of users, if not tens of thousands or more, um, lands like Second Life and even like World of Warcraft and things like that that have been around for a really long time at this point, um, do you think this might sound silly even saying that, but do you think they could ever reach like national register status? Um, like for example, if the people at World of Warcraft wow. just decided, listen, we're shutting our servers down, kick everybody out, we're we're getting rid of it. Do you think somebody could stop that and say, no, this is too important. You're going to destroy this virtual landscape that that a lot of things have happened on. Do you think um, it's, is that crazy? It, nothing is crazy when it comes to arcade <laughs> gaming. You know, it's like it's like yeah, I don't know. It's like anything goes. Um, 
with with uh, with WoW, I mean, you can't really build things. I mean, you can craft things, and you can have your guild, and you can go do stuff. And and there are documented instances of of guilds, um, you know, that do things like weddings in World, and they'll film it, you know, as machinima, um, or or they'll be there'll be, uh, you know, actions that happen, you know, in the world with, with, uh, you know, guilds and various factions and whatever, um, that create a history. And this is also true in, in places like EVE Online, for example, where, where they're actually parts of the historical record of that MMO, you know, of, of things, you know, that go on in that space that affect globally, you know, the kind of the universal community. Um, you know, if, if, if WoW was, you know, was going away for whatever reason. If Blizzard was going to start, you know, closing some servers, it might be possible to to file some kind of injunction or something, saying, "Hey, you know, this 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 will not stand uh, because so much has happened here that has affected thousands of players um, that it needs to be preserved." Um, I don't necessarily know that that would happen in, in in contemporary games as we see them now, but maybe in ten or twenty years when they're they're more, you know, kind of robust open worlds. That allow for this, uh, you know, additional city building and world building and, and building of community, where where all of a sudden you've got things that are happening that are that are important in there that are almost as important as things that are happening in the real world that would that would uh, you know require some kind of preservation. That's that's super interesting, and I'm going to think about that all night. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you know one thing I was thinking about was let's take Second Life as an example, because um, you can do almost anything in Second Life. In fact, one of my first exposures to that was when they were um, uh, Science Friday had a a virtual island on Second Life, and in fact, Ira Flato's character on Second Life was called Ira Flato, which I thought was, <laughs> was brilliant. Even though it is a three dimensional sort of space, it was still called Ira Flato. But anyway, um, so you could go there, sit with your little character in a lounge chair, and listen to the show, and you could see him, his character doing his little weird, you know, movement thing. But really, you're just listening to the radio show, right? They're just piping that through live. And so I guess the question would be, let's say you get some, you know, like Obama really changed things from a social media standpoint, you know, when he was running for president the first time. And and people are starting to ramp things up like that. Well, what if somebody sees that as as a voting community and decides to have some sort of rally in Second Life and... It makes some pronouncement, or we we dig back through the history books and find out this is where everything changed. This speech is where everything changed. That becomes National Register eligible. But did it really take place in Second Life? Because all those people were physically somewhere, but they all met virtually in Second Life in one digital spot, so to speak. I mean, where does where does, what do you even do with that? Wow, <laughs> you are That's pretty intense. I mean, you are like, blowing my mind. Yeah, That's totally realistic, though. That could happen right now. It, it, it totally could. Um, you know, with, I think uh, in a way it is happening with like anonymous and hacker yeah. groups like that who are really like using cyberspace to impact real world changes in very big, you know, social, political, and economic ways. So it's it's you know to kind of come back to Chris's question is like how do we define that as like an important historical event or social document or anything like that? Like, is it the coding language or is it, you know, like, where does that happen? No, it's, it's, it's always going to be with the people. You know, if, if somebody's making a pronouncement in second life, they're probably doing it wrong. Cause I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't necessarily know that, that a lot of folks are logging into second life now. Um, although I'm following Linden labs on Twitter and they're still, they're getting ready to do like a renewed second life or something, but I don't know a single person who's in that world right now. I don't know who's there, what they're doing or why. Um, but there are going to be other other games or other environments where something like that could could really happen. Um, people will record it, you know. They'll do it on Twitch or or YouTube Gaming or something like that, and and you know they'll have that preserved. You know, it's like this happened. This is when. This is who was there. Um, and so we'll have that historical record. You know, it's almost like having your own your own uh, video game created Zap Reuter film, uh, <laughs> where nice. where uh, you know you've you've got a lot of folks, you know, with the lens on, on what's going on in, in the virtual space, you know, and granted we're dealing for the time being with flesh and blood people. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? 
Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. All right. Well, that last segment probably cut off a little abruptly because we had a little uh, little Skype hiccup, a little lag, which should be familiar to anyone uh, on a gaming discussion. Um, so, unless you're in a, a Google Fiber neighborhood, which are which are which are all <laughs> coming around. I was just in Charlotte, North Carolina, and there's Google Fiber signs all over the place. So if you're in Charlotte, it's on its way. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know you can look on their on their website. I can't remember what it is, and and find out what the list they're they're rolling that out at. But anyway, let's wrap up some archaeo gaming here. Um, you know, I want to talk about what you think, Andrew, about the future of archaeo gaming. But I want to step back real quick and sort of meld two things we were talking about. You're talking about sort of legitimizing archaeo gaming uh, in the academic space, and also we were just talking about Second Life. It seems almost like a no brainer that there should be some sort of second life conference in this whole era of green and, and let's lower our carbon footprint. Why hasn't there been more yeah. second life conferences out there where people just meet in that space? You can even show a PowerPoint if you want and videos yeah. and, and whatever. So why, why do you think that hasn't yeah. caught on? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's second life as a platform. Um, I, I think a lot of, a lot of folks have, have grown beyond it or, or there are other ways to do those kinds of conferences. For example, um, Sean Graham hosted an online archeo gaming conference a few months ago and it was all done, you know, through like Google groups and, and, you know, Skype audio and stuff. And it was great. We had like 20 people, 30 people show up, uh, and we all had breakout rooms and everything, and it was terrific, you know, and it was an international affair. You know, there are people from the U.S., from Canada, from Germany, from the Netherlands, um, from the U.K. and Canada, and, you know, it was outstanding. So, you know, having it in Second Life, I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, I did the world's first Latin conventiculum um, in Second Life back in like 2008 or 2009, and we had a few people, you know, from different continents show up uh, to talk Latin at each other, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but the, there are other online venues that don't necessarily have to be in a gaming world or a virtual space in order to 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 do that kind of thing. And so, and it's already been done. Um, although it's interesting that there's a flesh and blood conference happening in the Netherlands, um, you know, coming up in April, you know, with uh, uh, the Value Project uh, in Leiden. And and so we'll be having a meetup there uh, in person. And for those people who can't attend, they'll be able to attend online and uh, and participate. All right. So to, to help sort of wrap this up, Andrew, where do you see the future of Archeo Gaming? Or, or to put it a better way, where do you want the future of Archeo Gaming to go? <laughs> wow. Um, it's... I seem to be the kind of the, the most vocal <laughs> Archeo Gaming <laughs> our Archeo Gamer out there, which is fine. Um, and, uh, you know, as I see it... Um, there's so much to do uh, with with Archeo gaming. Um, you know, back in December of 2015, I created this map of kind of where I thought Archeo gaming is and where it can go. And you know, it, it's it's everything from real world excavation of, of video games uh, to video game history to uh, treating you know video games as archaeological sites and looking at artifacts within those um, to considering the philosophy of the video game and and seeing you know how 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 world building you know how that works and how players interact with that to dealing with things like quantum entanglement um, where it's 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 gamer interaction you know with the video game that creates artifacts within the world to to uh, you know archaeological reception you know to uh, uh, you know talking with game developers and how they come up with their ideas and, and what that means for the community um, to you know machine created games and machine created culture to you know the archaeology of specific video games um, yeah to uh, you know just just looking at uh, general or generic material culture um, you know within these virtual spaces there's so much to do not one person can do it all and and 
you know, traditionally I've been a generalist anyway. And, and so being able to kind of, of create the roadmap um, has kind of been my main responsibility. And, and whoever's coming next will be able to kind of cherry pick, you know, these specific avenues to follow, um, you know, in order to, uh, you know, do something a little more concrete with, uh, you know, with the video games that are out there now, as well as things that were created in the 70s or 80s, um, you know, that deserve some kind of uh, archaeological notice. Okay. You know, you mentioned earlier, um, just as a, another sort of follow-up to this whole thing, you mentioned earlier talking to, you know, trying to talk to developers, not really getting any responses, but have you guys had any feedback from developers of these games that you're talking about in your peer-reviewed publications and things like that? And is anybody... Is anybody trying to um, talk to them about making the archaeology or making the, uh, you know, the representation of even even just their their online digital artifacts and things like that better, you know, from an archaeological standpoint? Yeah, um, we, we I've I've had contact with a developer who's chosen to remain anonymous. Um, who uh, you know basically said that they they follow the blog because they think it's interesting, um, but at the same time you know they think we're kind of missing the point as far as 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 you know archaeology and games are like we're just making a game man it doesn't mean anything we're just making a game and and you know from an from an archaeological standpoint or from an academic standpoint that's that's only part of the story there's always something else going on that's peripheral to to the developer doing something right um, and and so you know there's there's that debate going on. Um, with, uh, with the response to, you know, basically kind of lobbying developers to make the, either the archeology span better or to use an archeologist on staff or, or to consult with them with the creation of the games. Um, you know, so far the gaming industry is, isn't really interested. Um, you know, uh, one of the developers who wrote back said, uh, we hate these kind of idea guys. You know, who's kind of sit back and say, wouldn't it be great if you did this? They hate that. Um, you know, so the, the development teams are, are you know, very insular and they do their own thing and they're trying to make an entertaining game that will make money. Um, yeah. You know, unless you're talking about like indie games and indie games, you know, they, they'll want to make money. They'll want to be able to at least recover their development costs. But at the same time, they can still be a little open minded towards, um, you know, these 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 other avenues of thought. But um you know, we we as archaeologists have to be able to bring something concrete and useful to a development team. You know, where they might actually consider using this stuff. Um, I've always been a fan of saying, well, why don't we have achievement points for people who protect cultural heritage as opposed to people who are destroying this? Or, you know, let's give achievements to those who do not choose to loot versus mm-hmm. people who loot stuff to sell at auction house. Um, so, you know, we've got that stuff going on, and I doubt we'll be listened to. Yeah, just because it's it's commerce, it's an industry. Uh, its primary goal is to entertain, but also to make money. You know, if we do get heard, great. You know, we can keep shouting into the wind. Um, but uh, if not, that's just part of how the world works. And you know, there's plenty of other stuff for us to be doing too. Well, Andrew, it's been really great hearing from you. And from my perspective. It's really fascinating to hear more and more about RQ gaming and the development of that as a field of study. And uh, I'd like to see it succeed because I think it has a lot of importance for broader society and also for the way archaeology is done because, you know, at face value, it's just one more mode of um, engaging in public outreach and, you know, branching out and thinking outside the box. But then, you know, as we touched on earlier, we've also got, you know, it's implications for various theoretical perspectives. You know, you've got memes and symbols and, you know, economic and sociopolitical aspects and then behavior and all that. And so it'll be really neat moving forward to see the results of studies in archaeo gaming and how they might inform other um, avenues of, you know, archaeology. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. Um, you know, thanks for having me on the on the podcast, guys. And and uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. There's there's opportunities to to deal with all these questions, and it's really exciting for me. You know, uh, to to think that this stuff will happen. You know, after I'm gone, you know, people will still be asking <laughs> these questions, and and the science will will proceed. You know, I'm I'm only 43, but I'm already thinking of my own mortality here. But, but uh, you know, we're kind of creating the archaeology of the future at this point. And what we're doing now, these kind of baby steps, we're really setting the stage for what's coming next. 
And the better job we can do right now um, to make sure that we've asked the questions that we want to ask and that we have the tools that we need to use, um, you know, the better we set up our, our, you know, the people who are coming next um, for, for doing this kind of work. I almost think you need to change the name of it from Archeo Gaming to, to something else because it, it seems like, uh, you know, with the advent of, of Oculus Rift and things like that coming out, it's going to move beyond games into more virtual worlds, I would assume, that, that people just interact in. Um, you know, maybe not in the next five years, but maybe in the next 10, 15, 20 years, you know, we'll be, we'll be sitting in our fully immersion suit lounge chairs and just interacting <laughs> online with our pressure sensitive, you know, maybe I've seen too many movies. I don't know, but that's coming. <laughs> you know, I, I hope you're right. You know, we can also go down the ex machina route where, where <laughs> right, you know, yeah, right. with, with robots, you know, flesh and blood and, and the, and the digital come together and, and, and mm-hmm. potentially disastrous ways. Um, <laughs> so, so spoiler alert. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I'm I'm with you there. I mean, right now it's it's games and virtual spaces um, and archaeology, but it's it's going to be something more in the future. You know, whatever that neologism is going to be, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But it it should change. I mean, everything that we do, you know, is temporary and is subject to review. So whatever we we do now will either be overturned, overwritten, um, edited, or created anew. You know, ten or twenty years down the road, and I'm totally fine with that. And I hope it happens. Nice. Well, thanks a lot, Andrew. And uh, if you got anything else you want to come talk about, just let us know. We'll bring you back on the show. All right. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. You bet. All right. So we're back for our app of the day segment. Um, it's just Chris and I, and we're going to talk about two apps. There's no real theme for these apps. We just two apps that we wanted to talk about today. So Chris, why don't you go first? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the app that I've chosen for this segment is SoilWeb for the iPhone, and it is an app companion to um, the Web Soil Survey by the National Resource Conservation Service and the USDA. Um, if you've done, you know, soil descriptions or soil survey information in your CRM work, you're probably very familiar with. That website because it's a lifesaver. Um, some places don't have web soil survey coverage, uh, or at least not very good. I've had to go and look at like actual books and maps and stuff, and it's incredibly time consuming. Um, and so when this app worked, and that's uh, kind of the the main sticking point for this review, it was even more time effective. You know, I could be out in the field filling out a site description, uh, filling out a site form, and I could be done with my site form and have everything done with my soil information and all of that before I ever left the field. Um, However, the last time this app was updated, I'm looking here on... (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. (laughs) Yeah, was June 14th of 2010. Uh... So yes. I, w- I say maybe nine months ago, this app just stopped working altogether. Yeah. Um, and so when you download it and load it up in your iPhone, um, it just hangs up on you or it'll stick at the, the beginning and the help tutorial menu and it won't go beyond that. So... Um, don't waste your time with this app. It used to be great. Um, I would love if this thing came back online, uh, because it's fantastic, but, um, doesn't appear to have any support anymore. Uh, now that we're what almost six years later after its last update, uh, that's an eternity in app time. Yeah. Uh, and if you do download it and you've got an older phone, it does require iOS 3.1.2 or later. So, you know, check for this might actually work for some archaeologists because I know some of these people, man, they've got iPhones that are four or five years old and they're still hanging on. So maybe I'm surprised it hasn't self-destructed yet. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. So and I did notice that they so the, the one for iPhone is called Soil Web for iPhone, but there is an Android version that's just called Soil Web. And that hasn't been updated since June 10th of 2011. Uh, current version 1.3 requires Android 1.1 if that tells you anything Uh, I don't even know what number Android is on because they don't really use numbers they use 
food. So what is it, marshmallow or something right now? I don't even know what number that is. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it looks like a great platform, but they just need to update it. Maybe if people go in and write reviews and say, update this app or, or email them or something like that, they'll they'll do something. I mean, imagine with this kind of agency, though, it comes down to a funding issue. They just don't have the money to hire. They hired developers on a one-time basis to create these apps and then never looked back would be my yeah. guess. Yeah. All right. So that, uh, that'll be in the show notes if you want to go check it out, uh, just to take a look at it. But Don't they, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> don't check it out if you know it's good for you. Save yourself. Yeah. You want to do some uh, some Archeo? You know, there's Archeo gaming, which we just talked about. There's also some sort of Archeo app development. You could mine the Google Play and the iTunes Store for these old apps that just don't work anymore, and look at their history. Yeah, <laughs> there's a. I see a thesis coming on. Yeah. Um, all right, so I'm going to talk about an app that does work, uh, depending on your definition of work. It's a little. It's a little interesting. It's called Things, uh, and it's only for Apple and uh, iOS devices, unfortunately, but They've got a uh, Mac version that's full software price. It's forty nine ninety nine, and then the iOS version, which includes an Apple Watch app functionality, is uh, nine ninety nine. And I downloaded this when it was actually cheaper. I think it was about five bucks, and that was about three or four years ago. And it's a it's a pretty decent app, I gotta say. Um, it has iCloud support, which means if you're using it across multiple devices, it will update on all those devices, which is handy because it didn't always do that. But basically, this is just a task, ma- a really high-powered task manager application. You can create uh, areas, they call them. Um, like, let's say uh, an area could be, I don't know, a project. Like, if you're using this for CRM, an area I would create would be, say, the last project we did, the last field project. And then within that, you have projects. So you can't think of it like archaeology. You have to use their terminology. So you create the area that is your overall project. Then you create the areas inside um, or the projects within that area that would be, say, the literature search or the field work or the draft report or the final report. And then you create tasks within those that you can put any number of tags on. Um, I like to use tags for people, say, this person is doing this, this person doing this, so then I can click on their tag and see all the tasks they have and when that task is due. And, um, you know, they can go in if they're using the same account and and check their stuff off and you can look back through the history and see when those things were checked off uh if there's things you do all the time you can favorite them and they just appear as tasks that you can constantly check off time and time again which is a little bit weird but um it'll give you push notifications every day saying hey it's 9 a.m here are your tasks for the day that are due you know that are due today um it's it's a pretty powerful task manager i'm not so sure that it's 100 percent necessary unless you really love using task managers um I like it. I use it all the time, but I'm, you know, I'm really into it and I'm trying to keep multiple balls in the air as far as scheduling things. So, uh, you know, when it comes down to that, it's, it's pretty good. But, uh, otherwise, um, if you think that, uh, you have a lot of tasks and you're, you want to be really Uber, Uber scheduled and, and the, the devices you're using right now just aren't cutting it, then I would go ahead and download this and use it. But, um, cause it's not cheap. Like I said, $10 for the iOS application. And then, uh, fifty dollars for the other one but i think and i'm looking at this right now so this was updated unlike our last app um on november 19th 2015 so they are hot on this uh this application it's been updated for the ipad pro it's been uh you know they're which means which means people are using it they're getting a lot of support so they're keeping it updated um and let me see here I can't tell on here. I think you do have to buy it for both uh, iPad and iPhone if you're going to want it on both. It doesn't look like it's a universal application, but I can't really tell that in this interface. So anyway, those are our two apps for the day. Uh, I think we're going to go ahead and kill this podcast for now and, and come back next time. Chris, you got anything else about our apps? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much sums it up. <laughs> I, I was... Uh... I was on the fence about just going on like a, a cussing, foaming at the mouth rampage of how, <laughs> you know, soil survey needs to get their act together. But no, I'm just going to leave it there. Nice. Sounds good. Well, we'll talk to you next time. All right. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. 
Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at arcpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.